The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Join me in reading the word of the Lord this morning from Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm grateful to be able to speak this passage to you, and what irony that the passage that we're looking at is about church and the issues with it, right? It's going to be easy to leave this morning and already have your opinions formed, right? We come in with all our opinions. I was just talking to somebody the other day about, uh, just yesterday, um, some of my family is in town, and we we're talking about what it's like to hear ourselves speak and to evaluate ourselves, right? Have you ever heard yourself speak on a voice recording? You know when you play back your voicemail and you hear yourself and you go, ugh. Well, I have to do that every week, imagine, okay? Um, and I listen to my own sermons and evaluate, and, I, and I'm oftentimes my worst critic. And it's, this morning is ironic to me because I'm coming to you this morning to teach a passage about how we love and hate church. And I pray that as we look at this, that it would both convict and encourage you. I, the thing that's been really kind um, to see God's hand is that we have people that are coming to our church that both are in a place of maybe they've worshiped for years uh, and are in a place of a great season with God. We have people who've worshiped for years or grew up in a Christian environment and are really in a struggling, cynical place. And we have people that come through our doors that often are going, you know, I'll try this out. One of the greatest parts about being where we are located in this city even is that we have people, and maybe you're here this morning, welcome, that you saw a sign outside, you walked right in, and you decided, you know what, I'll go in there. It's a beautiful building. Let's see what's going on this morning. Uh, I pray that God actually reminds us this morning, no matter where we are on that spectrum, to listen. When I was uh, uh, years ago traveling through Europe, one of my... Um, you know, you, I don't know if you've been in Europe before. Uh, there's this joke about being in Europe called the ABCs, another bloody church, they say. Everywhere there's these huge, beautiful Gothic cathedrals, and they all are beautiful, and they're all ornate. And you get to this point where you're looking at them historically, and you walk in them, no matter where you are, in France and England and all these places. But the one that really stuck with me was in Italy. And it was in the Piazza San Marco, and this beautiful, you've seen it a million times probably on a movie and such. This church was very different than any of the others. Now, many of you may know that Venice is a place that's kind of sinking. The ground there is a little bit 
you know, off kilter because it's all, you know, it's such of an island in water. If you go into this church, uh, the St. Mark's there, it, it's essentially all of the ground is shifting. But if you begin and you can kind of feel it. But the other, the mark of this church that was really amazing to me was when you look around in the building, everything looks different. There are all these different statues or columns or, or, or different colors. And you kind of go, this is not like the other ABCs that I've seen in Europe. This is a different kind of church. And if you, if you ask and if you read of the history of that church, it's because the church was built out of stolen goods. All of the church has these different kind of things that were brought into Venice and we're like, we'll stick that there. You know, it's like your worst nightmare if you're a decorator. It's just not working. But isn't that such the picture of us? That's the real picture of the church. It's not the one, the one we get sick of and the one we're burned and bored and cynical and maybe come in and it's rote routine and maybe we've done it since we were a kid and we'll still do it because we want our kids to be a part of it is that beautiful ornateness. But in reality, no, n- nobody looks the same. Everybody's story's different. It's all, we're all stolen goods. It's all a mess. And if we don't admit to that, if we don't admit that that is who we really are as a church, we're missing it. I love that this, there's a famous poet, and I'm actually not even sure, I've never read his poetry before, but he made this comment to a monk that I have heard of named Thomas Merton. The poet was, um, his last name was Milovs. He said this, he, he wrote to the monk Thomas Merton and he said he didn't want to send his sons to church because he didn't want to make atheists out of them. I think it's an interesting phrase and I wonder how much we think of church in that way. I wonder how much we bring into this building and we bring into this room where we really are with the church. And what's great about this passage in Ecclesiastes is we've been looking at Ecclesiastes. It's been considered the black sheep of the Bible. It's, a, it's, the, it's the book that many are afraid of, that kind of, I don't know, it was, one of, it was considered one of the most dangerous books of the Bible because it forced people to really invest their thoughts on what's going on around them. And just like anywhere else in this passage, the preacher, which was probably Solomon, forces us to look at what does it mean to actually engage in God's house? What does it mean? And he he goes from saying, guard your steps, to talk about be careful, they're fools. He's not naive about what goes on in God's temple, in his house, in the church. And he draws it out. And the big issue that I want, and I just want to be very frank with you this morning. I do not want this. This is not me trying to convince you to just think that this is the best place for you. I want you to see that the reason we come into this room, the reason church is important, isn't because we get to meet at Scarlet Bennett. It is because we have a God that is way, way bigger and not equal at all to this building. He is far greater, no matter where you are on the spectrum. And I think there are three ways that he says this in this passage. To guard, to listen, and to do. Guard, listen, do. Three simple things. And he begins by saying, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. The very first part, when he says, guard, 
It is to proceed with caution. And this is where Solomon or the preacher is saying, he's commenting about that there are people performing when they go into church. Doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Don't we do that to God when we come into his presence? That we equate doing this routine of a Sunday morning to God himself, which is not God himself. God is not Sunday. Sunday is set apart for us to acknowledge and put our hearts before him. So we must guard our steps. Watch your steps. Notice he uses feet even to say that. Guard your steps that you might not fall into that. He's honest about who's going into church. Listen to what he says. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are, what they're, that they are doing evil. He is acknowledging the fact that inside the temple, inside the house of God, is foolishness going on. There are things going on in the temple that should not be happening. But does that mean that the house of God is defunct? Does that mean you get rid of it? No, he's not saying that. Notice that. He doesn't dismiss the house of God because there's foolishness in it. Because if we did that, we'd exclude ourselves. Would we do that with any other institution? We see foolishness in everything else around us. But does that mean we throw it out? When we see foolishness in ourselves, right? Are we to throw ourselves out? No. There's foolishness because it is us. Or we bring our hearts in here. But he says, he gives further. He says, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. He puts a distinction there quickly. To say there's a difference between coming into this space and where God really is. Where does he meet us? He comes to us. Don't be hasty. But let's be honest about it. There's, language here is actually interesting. Even the, word, the Hebrew of guard your steps is hearkening back to Exodus. When Moses sees a burning bush, you may have heard this even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. Way back in the beginning there's a burning bush and he sees this bush burning and he's like, what is that? And as soon as he approaches, God speaks to him out of there and says, watch out. Because where you're standing is holy ground. Take off your sandals. Be careful. There's a, a, a writer and, and a podcast uh, <clears throat> announcer who often uses these language. But he says this, the fact that Christ uses flawed people to accomplish his work on earth is actually a sign of his grace. Not a sign of his absence. The church's story, as twisted as it gets at times, is a beautiful story of God's grace, God's power, and God's redemption. So, by the way, is your life, which reflects the story of the church more than you'd probably want it to. That is who we are. And approaching these, this place is because there's someone in it. it. Look, we want to dismiss the church in two ways, I think, primarily. One is intellectual, one is emotional. There is such thing as Christian evil, okay? There is such thing, and we've encountered it, we've seen it, where those who have heralded the name of Jesus or the, have come in, the, in the, the name of the church have done things that are atrocious through history, time, even, even contemporary. But the thing that we need to remind ourselves that guilt by association is an error. Because the cure comes through flawed people doesn't mean that the cure for our death is flawed itself. 
And we have to think about that, that truth claims have to be dealt with separately and on their own terms. There is a truth claim that the church is making because we are to meet a God in it. That, that all of us carry these things. The fact that, that there is Christian evil proves that people who claim to be Christians can do bad things. It doesn't speak at all to the question of Christianity's truth or Christ's reality. There are bad things that can happen in that name. But what we're approaching here is as it even ends in this, the one you fear is God himself. The one to be heralded is him. Look, over many, Oz Guinness said this beautifully. He said, the decisive question isn't whether believers fall short of their beliefs, but whether those beliefs are true. Are we willing to, to proclaim that we're honest hypocrites? is an easier way to say it. I will be the first to tell you, I can be an honest hypocrite. I'm the one that has to speak to you every week. And if I come to you in a way and in a posture of me speaking to you as if I have it together and you don't, what am I doing? Isn't it easy for us to walk into the space and if we feel shame, and we often put that mask on, right? Oh, I can't say bad things in church. I shouldn't cuss around the church, or to a pastor. I, think, I find that very interesting. That's still those kind of things in our society that we talk about. Why is that? Because we've made this dichotomy between who God is and the church. We've, 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 we've taken this to say, and it's interesting that the same kind of response goes for others, even in history, who say that that. Christianity and the church, we, I don't know if we can trust it because of the people, because of the motivations. But do they really deal with the, the bad motives don't make bad beliefs? Emotionally, we can dismiss the church. And I would say this is where most of us come from. And it really is from a place where many of us in this space, and I find this most often to be true, where many of us have just been burned. There have been people who have harmed us or we've seen harm done and it has been difficult for us to stomach that, to look at that. And I, I first want to say I'm saddened and sorry by that. And I also want to say, you know what? There are people that I've hurt in my life. Haven't you? Haven't you received it? And we need to address it. We need to acknowledge that there's pain but we also need to look at this and say that, that just because we have been hurt, isolation isn't the answer. The church is gathered for a reason. If we are hurt, it doesn't, that what we're doing if we isolate is to say that we don't need anyone else to mend that and we're missing the point. Isolation isn't the answer. Christ, even in the scriptures, condemns any Christian evil. He moves towards that and says, in order for us to heal, we must soak in the wounds of another. That is Jesus. Christian violence towards enemies, he talk, Jesus talks about these. Christian violence towards enemies, Christian arrogance towards sinners, Christian coercion, Christian hypocrisy, Christian oppression against the poor, Christian abuse of power. All of these things are in the gospels and Jesus talks about them. But Jesus himself says it's not to do away with the church. It's for me to enter more into it. It's for me to be a part of it. 
And that's why he doesn't just say, you just need to go do. He moves from there to listening. Do you notice the number one word probably in here is to hear or listen. The number one part of this passage. Do not be rash with your mouth, right? Therefore, you let your words be few. When you make a vow, what is he saying? We have to be listeners. Listening is the number one thing in this passage. And how often is it that many of us have looked at the church and said, and we speak too much? Isn't that one of the biggest criticisms of church in culture is that it is called out for speaking in places and at times and inciting things in ways when the church should not but should listen. And oftentimes not speaking in the same sense when it should. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, wrote this about that issue. Christian morality without gospel-changed hearts often led to cruelty and hypocrisy. Hear that again. Christian morality without gospel-changed hearts often led and leads to cruelty and hypocrisy. Think about how many in Christendom have been treated, have treated the unwed mother or those who may struggle with homosexuality. The church was also silent before abuses of power and the ruling class of the weak. There have been many times when the church did not speak or did speak in ways that it should listen. Look, foolishness in this passage is saying those who are unconcerned about how they need to worship when they come in here. Do you know the point of church is to listen? And what does it mean to listen? It means we don't come in here and just lay our sacrifice down. Notice he says, to offer the sacrifice of fools. This means that we come often and instead of sitting and receiving and listening to what God is wanting us to hear to convict us, to not just tickle our ears and make us feel good, but also to comfort us when we're disturbed and disturb us when we are comfortable. But he is saying to us that we need to listen, that we don't just offer our sacrifice and do our performance review and then leave. What does it mean to listen? It means we come with few words. It means when you sit, when you actually listen to somebody, what does it really mean? It means you're wanting to take in understanding. It means that you're not just trying to formulate what you're gonna say next, right? It doesn't mean that you're ready on your defense for what they just said. It means you actually have to take it and submit and be humble for a moment, even if it's difficult. It means that if we're here, oftentimes we can come into this space and we can come to God and want to speak a lot, is what it's saying. It's saying that people came into church at this moment, came into the house of God and were rash with their mouths. They would say all these beautiful things. They would do everything right and perform just right before God, hoping that they could bargain with him to do what they wanted to do. But what he's saying is, listen. What is God's word saying? How does his word trump our word? How does his word supersede our words so that do you find yourself in conversations being one who is unwilling to listen? How does that translate in your relationships with those who may or may not follow Christ? Is there a listening aspect because you're listening to God himself? 
Listening means we, we take in before in, in informing. It means we don't respond anxiously with religious speak. It means that we sit and we think and we receive, and it is hard. It means we may hear things that we do not like. We may see a mirror of our own reflection and listening, which often happens when you have to hold your words back, right? You have to you have to sift your words. Even if you're an internal processor, you're doing that over and over, but you still are using those. Are you listening and understanding or formulating where you are? We don't speak in defense. See, foolishness here is equated to many words, whether spoken or not. And the question is, are you stopping to receive and hear? His word should supersede our word. And it should translate into relationships. I wonder what it's like for people to share with you and to actually know that you respond. Some of you are very good listeners, but are you a good listener because you're quiet or are you a good listener because you're really receiving and taking in? God is saying to us, that if we really want to know what it means to worship him, if we really want to know what it means to be the church, we have to be listeners before we are talkers. If we really want to transfer this out of these doors into the reality of our jobs, into our homes, into our friendships, into our marriages, into conflict that we see all over, into causes, we have to stop and listen. And this goes for both those in this room that would say, I follow God, I listen to his word, and those who would say, you know, I don't know if I do. Because you have to ask yourself, do you really listen? Or do you posit spiritual quips around to those around you without really knowing what God is saying? And those who are here that may not and are struggling, are cynical, are saying, I don't know. This is an opportunity to listen before you formulate those defenses. To say, what is God actually saying to me? Notice he uses this word, haste, nor let your hearts be hasty to utter a word. Rash words reveal a hasty heart. If your heart is the well, that the tongue is a bucket and it dips in and it draws out only what is there and to speak what is there. Your heart is that well. A hasty heart is one that is quick, that is anxious, that is wanting to prove something, both to God and to those around them. Is there a quietness? Is there a slowing down? Is there a willingness to hear what he is saying and not just what you want to happen? Because here's the the last thing that he says here. What does it mean to be a doer rather than a dreamer? What does it mean to do? Notice he says this twice and it's like a bookend. In verse three, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. At the very end, it ends again in verse seven. When the dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But if God is the one, you must fear. Dreams here is not like a literal dream. It's a, you know, it's a fantasizing of things. He's saying those who actually have big dreams, those who, are, who talk big and perform big. It's saying this kind of Christianity, this kind of relationship to God is a mile wide and an inch deep. It is all these things that we talk about. Are we, are we, oh, 
I'm going I'm to have this kind of relationship with God. I'm going to really reach into the city. We may have all these dreams about doing things with God in the city and caring for those around us, but if we're not following through on those things, that's what we're being called out. We're called out for fantasizing a performance of our piety instead of actually reaching in. Look, the church is not an ideology. This is not an idea. This is a reality. One of my favorite, favorite theologians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a martyr in the, uh, in the 20th century, <clears throat> said this about, about those who dream of the church. He said, he who loves his dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of that Christian community. You know what he did? He actually came here centuries ago, a century ago and, and looked at the Christianity going on in America, Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, and he had so many concerns about what was going on in our nation and church and wrote often about it, <clears throat> about the way that the, the, the 20th and 21st century church now finds itself to be a mile wide and an inch deep because are we really focusing on on the reality of what's going on in us and around us, or we have an ideology of what should happen? Do we have dreams? Are we fantasizing? This is what he says by vows. When you pay a vow to God, he's talking about people who make vows, dreams of things, saying, God, if you bless me with this, if you make this happen in my job, if you make this happen in my child, if you will do this in that person that I want to marry, if you will give me what I want, God, I will live out for you. Do we not voice those things? Do you see the bargaining chips that go on with that? That's what he's saying. He's saying these are dreams for us. And I have, to, I have to say this and push this a little bit because this is kind of what's going on. Do you see your church attendance matching your actual growth. Because if you find yourself being a great church attender and there is no growth, you have to ask yourself, do you believe that the church is what it really is? Are you listening? Are you guarding your steps? And maybe you're coming in here for the first time, maybe you don't attend church regularly. Maybe that's also the, the, another question as well, right? that if we are really engaging in what church is in listening, that we shouldn't just be dreamers, we should be doers. It should be something that we see. It should drive us outward. It should show us moving into things. We don't just talk about a missional community on stage. We actually live it. We actually say, how can I get involved? How can I create more of those? It is so easy for us to sit in our sweet Christian spiritual wombs. And I am first and foremost of that. It is so easy to think this is all that we need to do to be a part of it. I get we all are practical. I get that we all have jobs. I get that we all have families who are struggling. But how are we just looking at the person right next to us? And putting ourselves in an uncomfortable position to care for them because we're called not to dream of this great community that we have, but to reach in and do. Isn't that what the church is often criticized for? Why does the gospel spend so much time saying they will know you are Christians by your love? Love is not an emotion. It's an action when it's used in that language. 
Are we doing that? When we talk about connecting and serving, we give on-ramps. We want to provide opportunities to do that. Those are not the only ones. But we are trying to say, and we want to do this, and that includes me, the one who's actually speaking to you, that has to listen also. I have to preach to you things. I have to speak things to you that I myself don't want to say because I am scared of what they mean for me. Let that encourage you because it means that I have to submit myself just as much. I am no different than you. And I am so grateful to be your pastor, but know that I am a fellow struggler with you in this. Do we attend church because it's our performance? We wanna, we wanna try and pay our vow to God. But do we see it as our relationship to him? You see, this table in front of us is, is key for this, and this is why. This table means far more than we even realize. Because at this table, it's telling us the point of what we're doing here. You see that the interesting thing about what Solomon, the preacher, was saying about the temple, the house of God, he's reminding us that God didn't quit on us. You know, the beginning of the Bible is about Eden. It's about this glorious relationship that Adam and Eve had with God, this perfect relationship. They, they had no need for a temple at that time. They had no need for necessarily a sacrifice or a church or place. They met God openly. After sin entered the picture, it ruined all that. Do you know what the church reminds us of? And the temple reminded, and this is what Solomon was trying to get at, was it reminds us that God still pursues us. Not the building, but that God pursues us. So that's what we're doing here, that he has come to dwell beneath the sun. You know, Ecclesiastes often says this line, that everything under the sun, you realize God is not under the sun, he's above it. But what he does in his church is to say, I will dwell with you under the sun. What he has done in Jesus by dwelling with us. That's why he calls himself the husband to the bride. That's why we sang this beautiful song about the bride of Christ. That is who we are called because the husband dwells in the son with his bride. And even though we will all, none of you are, nor I pass the fact that we will all abuse his name. You have abused his name, I have. He still dwells with us and carries us on in faithfulness. This table is showing us it's not about a building, it is about a person. We come here to receive his body and blood because he gave it for us. It is not about your faithfulness or mine, it is about his. This is what unites us. You know, it's like communion. It's called communion because we commune. We have common time together. We're communing with both God and one another. When we line up in our semicircles here, we do that and we want people to come forward because we want everyone. And I always love doing this. If I'm sitting out there and I'm watching people, I just watch the people come up because every one of those people, even if I don't know them, is a part of this body with me. And I would encourage you if you're here this morning, to come forward and receive this 
blood and body of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, not in your name. In the name of the one who's faithful. And if you're here this morning and maybe you're, you're really entertaining, maybe you just, you need to continue listening in a way that's like, you know, I need to listen before I can do. Maybe I need to listen and take in and see and entertain. Don't come forward and take this body and blood if you're sitting there and you really are with integrity saying, I don't know if I can, I can actually do that. Don't, don't come take it. Stay in your seat or come forward and re- receive prayer. Fold your hands. That is the right thing to do because you don't want to listen and then perform some ritual. But if you're in Christ, come forward and do this because you hear him, not because you're giving some rote sacrifice. Let's stand now, if you will.